everyone. I'm Louise Rumble and I am so excited to introduce Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast that explores the amazing impact that therapy and human connection can have on all areas of our lives. This is Open House and everyone is invited. We hope you enjoy. Hi all and welcome to Restore 20, Fora's five-day festival celebrating all things mind, body and soul. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're in this beautiful space in Soho, London, to run through an open therapy session to talk about how childhood impacts exactly who we are in adulthood. With myself and Dr. Helen Laurent Oliver as part of our new venture, Open House. Before we get into it, I just wanted to thank Fora for hosting us today. Founded in 2016, Fora is the tailored workspace that provides its residents with the freedom to choose where and how they work best. Understanding that happy, healthy people deliver their best work, Fora marries style and function to create vibrant, dynamic workspaces that drive productivity, inspiration and collaboration. Open House launched just a week ago, and we have been so, so overwhelmed with all of your positive feedback so far. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Without further ado, if you can't tell, I'm a little bit nervous. So <laughs> let's get started on today's session. And thank you again for joining us and providing me with a safe space to go on this journey with you. Over to you, Dr. Helen. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Helene Laurent Oliver, a clinical psychologist specialising in child and adolescent mental health. I'm particularly interested in how our childhood experiences affect us in adulthood and throughout our live therapy sessions on our podcast, we've been going through some of the small traumas and experiences that have affected Louise through her life. So this evening, we're going to be taking you through some exercises. Firstly, we're going to be looking at a childhood reflection exercise, then looking at attachment and how it affects our relationships. And finally, we're going to be looking at how self-esteem develops over time. Please note that you guys can put questions into the Zoom box at any point during this session, and we're going to try our hardest to get through as many of them as we can. But don't panic. If we can't get to yours today... Dr. Helen and I are going to make sure that we can do an Instagram live later this week so we can get through all of them. Also, we're holding these worksheets and you've got access to these so you can follow along with all of the exercises as we go. If anything that we discuss tonight is triggering, feel free to step away and come back to this content when you're feeling a little bit better. Okay, so shall we get started? Yeah, let's oh! do it. <laughs> okay, all right. So, Louise, the first exercise that I thought would be great to share is this um, childhood reflection exercise. So what I asked Louise to, for you to do is to go through your relationship with your mother, father and your brother. Um, so how did you find going through this? Yeah, so I found this um, a really interesting exercise, I'd say. I think that sometimes we just get used to how things are and we don't actually stop to ever ask why or what happened to maybe make that happen. Mm. So I definitely had a couple of light bulb moments along the way. Um, yeah, and I, I would say it was really helpful. Mm. That's really good. And did you feel you got um, some new insights into your relationships and perhaps more empathy towards some of your parents for how they were? Yeah, definitely. I think that it, it really helped me to understand that my parents are who they were, who they are because of what they've gone through. Mm. And going through the questions, it, it was just really helpful to kind of see how they've gone on that journey as well as me going on my own journey. Yeah, yeah. OK, great. So shall we start off with your mother? Yes. Let's. OK. <laughs> so what did you learn from your mum? What did you observe in her? 
So when I was doing the exercise, I think the first thing that came to me was that um, my mum was just the perfect homemaker. She was the mum that was just always there. She cooked, she cleaned, she tidied. She picked me up from school all the time, mm. parties, middle of the night, literally everything. <laughs> so I think that what came out of what I learned from her is that... Um, a mother and a woman's place, you know, is is that maternal figure in the home, like, reliable and, and stable, probably. Yeah. yeah, well, it sounds like she was sort of superwoman, yeah. really um, doing an amazing job at looking after the family. But also she was able to provide you with that safe base. And what we know about childhood development is that it's really important that you feel secure at home so you can go off into the school environment, learn, knowing that you can come back to that place of safety. Do you think that's what she was able to give you? Yeah, definitely. It felt like she was always there um, throughout really my whole life. And anything really that bad or traumatic that's happened to me, she knows everything. So Mm -hmm. I would definitely say that she provided that base for, for me to feel safe Uh, Mm. to know that if I needed to go to her, that she was there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're really lucky um, to have had that experience. Yeah. So um, now that you're an adult, what have you got any new insights or new understandings about your mum? Yeah, I think that doing this exercise made me realise that I felt a bit of guilt coming up, Mm. that she spent so much time being that amazing sort of superwoman mother figure because as I grew up and got older I saw how much time she spent in the kitchen in the house Mm. and I think that it made me feel a little bit guilty and that I wished perhaps that she knew that if she wanted to she could go out into the big bad world and do whatever she wanted and that we Mm. would support her too so I guess that came up yeah so she was really selfless and Mm. yeah and do you think that she ever felt frustrated maybe that she was doing all this for for you and your brother and your dad Yeah, I think yes and no. Like, she just does so much without asking for anything. But then there would be times when, you know, you could tell that she's frustrated because she just works all the time. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that frustration definitely was something that I picked up on as well. Mm -hmm. And did she ever communicate that frustration with anyone in your family? Yeah, um, I would say that my mum was um, quite vocal in her communication. So I have quite a fiery streak to me and I'm um, not scared, shall we say, to really say it how it is and communicate (laughs) it. And um, I think I've really learned that from my mum. She sometimes, yeah, would be really vocal and like would definitely kind of raise her voice if she was frustrated and definitely think that that's maybe something that I've learned from her along the way. Mm. Should probably work on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So your mum kind of occasionally would bubble over and she would express her frustration. Do you think that at times maybe you you modelled that, but maybe the partner that you're with doesn't always kind of deserve that frustration, but it's just a a template, something you've learned from her? A good question. Yeah. I would definitely say that in my relationships that... Sometimes I can just be really fiery and really feisty and that probably a different method of communication could have worked just as well mm. or probably much better, mm. like a more calm communication. Um, but it just feels like for me that kind of hot-headed reaction is almost like wired into me. Um, but I think going since we've gone through these therapy sessions together, now I have a bit more awareness around that mm. so I can just kind of take stock and be like, okay, I'm... I feel like I'm going to react here, so I'm just going to take a moment and 
breathe, zen, and then like engage. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess what you're describing links into the worksheet. So um, before this session, I created a little worksheet on how our parents can influence us. Mm. So it sounds like you adopted a bit of that communication pattern of maybe being a bit fiery. But for some people, it can go the other way, where actually they're very afraid of conflict Mm. and they'll avoid it at all costs. Yeah, that definitely wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've always, yeah, I've always thought it's quite interesting when people are like, oh, I hate, I hate conflict. Because mm. I was always thinking like, really? Mm. I quite like it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's not maybe that normal, but there we go. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, there isn't anything wrong with, um, you know, confronting people with issues. Um, I think perhaps in my family, it's almost the other way where... Mm conflict really wasn't something that happened but nothing really got said Mm. and that has its own challenges as well so as you go through these exercises don't feel like you've got a bad family or whatever it's just the noticing what patterns exist yeah that's super interesting thank you okay so um i think you've already touched on some of the aspects you tried to push against and that's just being a free independent woman (laughs) yeah i definitely don't feel like i have adopted like the amazing kind of um, motherly at home role yeah so I definitely think that I've tried to push against that in you know traveling all around the world and working all the time mm. um I didn't even realize maybe until I did this exercise that I had been doing that mm. and then when I did the exercise it was like oh yeah that's exactly what I what I pushed against because I'm kind of not em- emulating or replicating that situation yeah and I guess this leads on a bit to your father because it sounds like you're really challenging challenging channeling (laughs) that masculine energy of you know being a go-getter so what are some of the things you learned from your dad yeah so my dad was the amazing sort of typical strong um working father who was just worked so hard was did so well for himself and and really was very self-made and Mm -hmm. um yeah just worked a lot and was probably Um, a little bit absent sometimes Mm. because of that, just because he worked a lot. Mm. And uh, I would say that from him, the the trait that I've kind of learned is like the graft and the hustle and just go out there. Like you've got to do it. Mm. If you want to make a life for yourself, you have to go and work for it. So I would say that that's definitely what I've learned from him. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess, um, as some people may know, that has come at a bit of a cost, I guess. Um, Perhaps sometimes you've had to overcompensate and you work a little bit hard do you think that links in with a way that you've sought approval from your dad yeah definitely I think that my whole life I've had these tendencies to kind of go faster go harder be better um and it wasn't really until we started in therapy together that we'd started to deconstruct some of those things Mm. and yeah it became quite clear in those sessions and also in this session that I probably was, maybe because he was a little bit more emotionally absent Mm. um, and also because he went through such a stressful child with his own father passing away kind of so young. Mm. I mean, it makes me really sad even talking about it. Mm. Um, And then going to boarding school, like, so young as well. He was probably uh, a little bit emotionally unavailable. Mm. So I think that the combination between, like, the work and that meant that I probably was, yes, seeking his approval, but without I didn't even really realize it until I kind of started in therapy I thought that that's just who I am like go go harder be better Mm. and then when we started to unpack it 
it became a bit clearer. Yeah, yeah. And again, linking to that table, sometimes when people um, are a little bit avoidant or absent, we can try to work harder Mm -hmm. and try to get their attention or go the other way um, and be a little bit more avoidant and just think, well, actually, I'm okay on my own. Do you relate to either or both of those kind of statements? Yeah, probably both. Um, I would say that probably in my childhood, I maybe sought more approval, um, always wanted to kind of do better at school, Mm. be in the best sports team, so he would come and watch me. Mm. But then I think in my um, later teenage years, he moved to South Africa. Mm. Um, And I think at that point, I became a bit more avoidant Mm. where... It was almost like, well, it's we can't really have a, a relationship as, as easily now. Mm. So I'm almost just going to stop trying. Um, I mean, I love him so dearly, but I mean, we didn't stop talking or anything. Mm-hmm. But I think at that point, I probably became, yeah, maybe like a bit more avoidant. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And when and as the brain develops, we find kind of slightly more immature coping strategies. Um, so yeah, I think I've had quite a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> So our brain only fully matures at 25 and the prefrontal cortex, which is that perspective taking bit, is the last to fully develop. So when we're younger, we have to try to find ways of overcoming problems. So when you were younger, you tried harder to get him to notice you, I guess, um, or at least you felt you needed to. And then as you got older, you were like, nope, this is too difficult, and you withdrew. Mm. And that was like a coping mechanism that was adaptive at the time, but now you need to be really careful that those patterns don't carry on into other relationships. Yeah, that's super interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if now as an adult you're starting to get maybe a better understanding of why your dad finds it hard to perhaps connect with you or or just be as open as your mum was yeah and I think that that has been just such a huge part of the journey that I've been going on since I started therapy Mm. I've understood that what he went through as a child formed him and he was born in a generation and went to a boarding school where you know it was very regimented Mm. and and there was no emotion really involved in it and I think that now I'm able to treat him with so much compassion. Mm. I feel awful for what he went through. I would take it back if, like, from him if I could. Yeah. Um, whereas I think before and before I went to therapy and worked through it, I was probably a little bit resentful. Mm. Um, and also, obviously, it really impacted my self-esteem. Like, I didn't feel good enough. But it was all um, subconscious, I think. I yeah. don't necessarily realise I was aware of it. Mm. But just now being aware of it, bringing it up in therapy and then yeah treating it with some more compassion yeah I just feel like we have got so much closer and lockdown was you know beautiful for that it was Mm. like you're stuck together yeah let's like work on this yeah it was really really nice that's really nice and I think having a little bit of empathy can help bring you know relationships a bit closer you were talking about the generation um you know our parents' generation, they usually had multiple children. Women had to take care of a lot of stuff um, in the home, perhaps sometimes even working as well. So they weren't always available mm. to really model to their children how to you know, be emotionally in tune. Um, and of course, some people just naturally find it easy. But with others, they find those maladaptive coping strategies to, to be all right mm. when they've got an... Um, sort of unavailable caregiver yeah yeah super interesting and I feel like 
the second that everything starts to slot into place, you're just a bit more like, oh, mm. that, that, makes sense. that makes sense. So, yeah, I found that that awareness and compassion is mm. really helpful. And you can stop personalising it, stop thinking maybe it's about you, but it's just about the situation, so you can mm. externalise the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so probably that's enough on your dad. He'll probably breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> that, that we're moving him. on. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, actually... Just one quickly. more. One, one more. more. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Is there anything that you push against? Is there anything that you... Oh, yeah. So my father is quite um, just like traditional British man, worked incredibly hard. Um, yeah. And I would say that I became a lawyer. Yeah. Probably he's a lawyer. So probably some subconscious thing going on there. Um, and then I would say that as I've got older, I have actually rebelled against being that really structured person. Mm. And I would say that I've become a bit more of a wild child and just like really embracing of my own creativity and like passion and fluidity in a way that is probably a bit different to like the, the situation that I grew up in. Mm, yeah. And it's really important to notice what our parents are projecting on us because as we're growing up, we just take it as normal. Like, yeah. oh, it's just normal to aspire to be a doctor or lawyer. But actually, it might be our parents, the school or society mm. projecting their ideals onto us. And it's not always great because you know our education system for example measures us on this very narrow criteria when actually our talents might be far wider than that and so I think it's great to do this work understand what is it that I truly want to do and what is somebody else's dream for me yeah that's so interesting um I think that looking at where I am now I'm in this kind of crazy creative space working with disruptive brands and bringing new ideas to life mm. and I think that looking back when I was at school those kind of jobs like marketing creative they just weren't discussed like they just literally weren't discussed mm. and then you know with a father who went down quite a traditional career route that obviously thought that that was um, a s safe secure and stable thing to do mm. as a result of all of that it, it just ended up me <laughs> becoming a lawyer which yeah. In hindsight, I don't regret it. It's bought me a lot of skills that I love to be able to bring to the table in real life. But mm. yeah, that, that's super interesting to think a bit wider mm -hmm. outside of other people around us. Mm, yeah, and to notice your, your, who's influencing you. Okay, so your dad really is off the hook now. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> We're going to move on to your brother, another reluctant. Yeah, um... yeah doesn't want to be on the side there. <laughs> no. Sorry to you too. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so what did you admire in your brother? So I basically admired everything about mm. my brother. Um, I would say that I probably felt that he was the favourite sibling. Um, he's younger than me and just always thought that, again, probably subconsciously, I don't remember ever, like, externalising it or vocalising it. So I kind of admired everything. Mm. I thought that things came quite easily for him. Um, so, yeah, everything, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's easy to understand um, sibling rivalry through a kind of evolutionary psychology lens. Oh, go on. Sorry, that no, was a bit I, of a no, I like it. I like it. <laughs> but basically, um, our main instinct is to survive. And so you as the oldest, all of a sudden, so you were the princess, you had sort of attention and love all directed at you. And then out of nowhere, you get your sibling. And now all of a sudden you have to share that. Mm. Now in survival terms or evolutionary terms, you would have had to share food and shelter and other things to actually keep you alive. So... Um, you would feel naturally envious of mm. your brother. Um, 
And so now it just comes out in sibling rivalry, a tussle for the top. Um, but in those early years, it would have really influenced how, like, what you chose to do. So linking back to your dad, do you think that he saw you differently, you and your brother? Um, I think that he connected very easily with my brother. I think that um, he's a man that went to an all-male boarding school, just loved sport. And then you've got a son who's incredible at sport. I think that that connection was just super easy. And I think that um, I probably felt like it was maybe a little bit more difficult to connect with me because I was doing ballet and gymnastics. Mm. And um, they're just probably less boys, toys and sports and stuff like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, potentially. Mm. So maybe you felt like you had to adapt your authentic self in order to seek the approval of, of your dad. Yeah, I definitely think that it came out in um, in terms of like my sporting career. Mm-hmm. I felt I, I did a lot of, of sport at mm-hmm. school and I just, yeah, always felt that if I could do the best and be the best and be the captain and be on the first whatever team, that maybe he'd be there on the sidelines, which many times he was and I'm not going to take that away from him. Um, but yeah, I think mm-hmm. that it probably subconsciously all came out in that way. I don't really remember ever like consciously thinking mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that that came out. Yeah, and and it's actually really interesting to pick up on you saying, I wasn't really consciously aware of it. That's really normal because, again, as the brain develops, we find ways of understanding and Mm. speaking about experiences. But as children, we we can't do that very easily. And so the stories and the narratives around those childhood experiences are more like feelings or Mm. memories or images. And that might be why it's difficult for you to talk about them. super interesting. I find that sometimes when I do inner child work, I'll get memories or situations that will come back. So Mm. that's probably... Probably not. why, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so is there anything that you know now or that you understand now as an adult which you didn't understand before? Yeah, I would say that um, now I'm an adult, it just the whole narrative that I built up in my head around like him being the favourite sibling just wasn't, wasn't true and it just wasn't mm-hmm. the case. Um, and I think that, yeah, being able to explore that like as a family and since I've started therapy has been really revolutionary and and Mm. just profound to understand that actually that whole narrative that defined my life for so long Mm. kind of just came from in here Mm. um, and like a bit of feeling as well Mm. so yeah now now I know that actually you know he probably potentially was a bit envious of how close I was with my mum and then I was focusing on how close he was with my dad so yeah yeah and you know people often ask why is there such an emphasis on your childhood in therapy and the truth is that when we are developing and learning we create this template and a a basic and almost immature map of, Mm. of the world and then as we grow up we don't always challenge that map and check out the details we just take information and squidge it into that map so that it makes sense and that's one of the beauties of therapy actually because you know perhaps you don't feel like you've got a major problem but it's really good to analyze some of these assumptions and just check that they really are a correct and b helpful (laughs) yeah i feel like us deconstructing everything together has been yeah really really helpful yeah thank you (laughs) okay amazing um so maybe now's a good time to pause and to have a look at some questions questions okay oh god put me on the spot see how this is going (laughs) okay right Mm, this is a good question i feel like quite a lot of people um 
will relate to this. So <laughs> my parents gave me a really good childhood and I felt like I had absolutely everything. But today I really lack self-confidence. Why do I feel like this when I haven't gone through no major trauma in my childhood? Mm. Yeah, that is a really good question. I feel like because people say to me, oh, I don't need to go to therapy because nothing really happened to me. And I'm always like, it doesn't have to. Like, mm. you just can understand yourself better. And, and so that, that mm. question is good. Yeah. I'll leave it to you, clinical psychologist, <laughs> okay. to answer that one. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a great question. Um, so I think one thing that we can do is perhaps look back at our childhood and our parents as being quite perfect um, but actually they're human beings and it's really normal that they weren't perfect but what we do need to understand is what they were doing that kind of maybe made us adjust in order to survive in that relationship um, so perhaps what was her name again um, Elena okay so perhaps Elena isn't aware of some of the things um, that her mum did. Perhaps at times her mum wasn't so sensitive. Um, in my clinical work, I've got a lot of parents who say, I just don't understand why she's depressed. You know, she's got, I take her on holidays, she doesn't want for anything. But oh, as a clinician, yeah. I'm sort of observing and I'm like, yeah, but you're not really attuned to your child's emotional needs. Oh. And as I've mentioned before, with the brain development, children cannot say, mum, I feel disappointed that you um, sent me to boarding school. I felt really abandoned, blah, 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 because they just don't have that, that, capability. that capability. They don't have the perspective. They don't have the words. And so it's up to parents to be really proactive and suggest, OK, I'm noticing that you're a bit sad. Is that because you're missing us because you're at boarding school? And help the children kind of get the, the words around their experience. Yeah. So... It might be that on the surface, childhood was beautiful. Parents might have been together. She may not have wanted anything, but perhaps that emotional attunement might have been missing. Got it. Yeah. I feel like that happens to so many of my friends as well. They're like, I had a great, I had a great childhood. Everything's good, but I just drink so much mm. or like I take drugs or I do too much exercise. And I just feel like, mm. yeah, you've got some things that if you talk through them, I think other stuff will come up that you don't realise is, exactly. is kind of coming up. And as a side note, I really think it's about time we destigmatize therapy. Like you do not have to have experienced a big trauma. You don't have to have experienced, you know, sexual abuse or a life threatening incident or anything small traumas that go through your life can affect you and hold you back and so why wouldn't you want to be the best you can be and it's something I'm really passionate about is just releasing those shackles from your past or releasing those unhel unhelpful thoughts so you can go forwards and be the best version of yourself yeah preach it sister <laughs> I feel exactly the same which is why I'm sat here with you I feel like I always used to think that um therapy was for times of crisis and I just, I honestly never, ever thought about going to therapy. I was like, why would I go to therapy? I've had a great upbringing. I've, I've wanted for very little. I've had amazing parents. And now I'm just like the biggest advocate of like, go to therapy. I promise you it's going to change your life. Yeah, yeah. And it can get worse before it gets better, to be fair. But oh, yeah. The first few sessions, I just was like, my therapist was probably like, wow. Yeah, it gets better, kids. Okay. Oh, so many. I don't know which to pick. Um, okay, Rob. Okay. My mum has had a drinking problem for as long as I can remember. Oh, poor Rob. My childhood memories involve having to wake her up and also look after my little brother. Mm. 
I'm carrying a lot of resentment around that and I find I'm bringing it into adulthood. How can I let this go? Oh, well, Rob, first of all, I am really sorry that you've experienced that. Um, no child should be robbed of their childhood um, and have to go through that. Um, yeah, so I'm really sorry you've had to go through that. Um, I think that, again, this experience could go one of two ways. So you might be holding some resentment because it's hard, well, it might be hard for Rob to stop, kind of let go of that um, caregiver role. Oh, yeah. And focus a bit on his own needs. So maybe you're making new relationships or or just um, pursuing his own interests. He might be held back feeling like he's selfish if he does that. Oh, because he's basically played the caregiver role as a child. So now in a relationship, that's fairly likely that it will come up in the same way. Yeah, yeah. and that's if he's made time for a relationship at all. Because ah. it, it, perhaps Rob's kind of still linked to the past a bit um, and still perhaps taking care of his mum and, and his brother. Um, on the other hand, that resentment of losing out on childhood might mean that he's completely severed ties with his mum. Uh, and that's that, really difficult. Th that relationship's really difficult. Um, again, I think that's where empathy comes yeah. in and maybe compassion, compassion um, maybe understanding where his mum was at. Um, and, and that's no easy thing. And mm. I think this is probably a good case for seeing a therapist and just getting a bit of help to find a relationship with his mum that works. Um, yeah, I find that um, something that I learned in therapy was that parents are often just doing the best with what they had at the time. Mm. And obviously that's so difficult when, you know, someone says, well, my parents did this or this mm. and it was awful. And it's, you know, it's, it's almost like it can't, you can't excuse them from what they've done. Mm. Um, but sometimes just understanding that, you know, people fight their own battles and their own demons is maybe like a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And holding resentment or a grudge, I mean, clearly I understand why there'd be a lot of resentment, but holding that, can actually hold you back yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so carrying that negative energy and that anger can just be really unhealthy. So, yeah. We've got so many questions. Oh, already? But I oh, feel gosh. like maybe just in terms of time, we can keep going, either come back okay. to some at the end um, and we'll touch on them later this week in okay. the Instagram Live as well so people feel like we can get back to them all. Okay, okay. sounds good. <laughs> All right, so... Back to the stressful back, stuff, me talking. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we're going to move on now to attachment. So attachment is something that's formed in early childhood. So John Bowlby was one of the first to really talk about it. Um, so in evolutionary terms, um, babies are preset to attach to their primary caregivers. So this is a survival mechanism because if you seek proximity with your caregiver you're more likely to stay safe oh they basically keep you alive in the exactly. tribal times yes in a cave <laughs> yes basically yeah but it's something that's innate in us but for lots of different reasons perhaps um, parental depression or some sort of trauma or whatever attachment can become a bit disrupted mm -hmm. and so that yields one of four attachment patterns yeah so so we've actually linked these in your worksheets. Um, don't know if anyone has been able to do it yet, but we linked both a short form one, 
which will basically give you a small overview as to kind of your predominant um, attachment style. And I think that's something Dr. Helen has taught me is that sometimes you can also be a mixture of, of some of them. So just to be aware that, you know, there might be um, a couple of other things at play. And then the longer questionnaire, which if you guys have the time to sit down and go through it, it's really amazing um and it will break down your attachment style by um well we're going to go through it now so you can see but yeah. hopefully you guys can do that at some point if you haven't already yeah great awesome so just a quick overview of those four attachment styles so the first one is secure so that's where you're comfortable with intimacy you're able to express your feelings and be emotionally vulnerable and you're also able to kind of set um really reasonable boundaries mm -hmm. The next is being anxious. So that's where you really crave um, intimacy and closeness and you feel, you know, really worried and unstable if you don't get it. Um, you're also likely to kind of seek lots of reassurance. Um, with avoidant attachment styles, you're uncomfortable with the closeness um, and proximity of others. You're perhaps always seeking something else or another relationship. Um, you are okay when it comes to sort of casual relations, but harder when it comes to sort of real intimacy based on love. Yeah. Um, and then disorganized is much rarer. So it's only seen in about 5% of the population. And it's kind of a combination of anxious and avoidance. So it's where you feel uncomfortable with intimacy and worried about your partner's commitment to love. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> So um, you completed through mine. Yes. <laughs> so you completed um, the long form, yeah, um, which looked at how you are in relationship with different people. So your parents, your friends, and your romantic partners. Yeah. Okay. So it what was, were the results? <laughs> it was really interesting. Um, honestly, I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I didn't enjoy doing the questions because it really makes you look inwards and mm. be like, oh. <laughs> I'm kind of crazy. Let's go with that. Anyway, um, so my mother, I got a secure attachment style. Mm -hmm. My father, I got an avoidant attachment mm. style. And so just the pause there. So that means that you perhaps have a tendency to be avoidant around him. Um, yeah, I believe so. Mm. I believe that it's probably that I didn't have the secure attachment style that I had with my mother um, mm. and that I probably was a bit more disconnected potentially mm -hmm. yeah. um my friends i had a secure attachment style um which is really interesting and i think makes sense and then my partner um came up as in relationships romantic relationships it's more of an anxious attachment style mm -hmm. okay so um so you're likely to worry a lot and seek a lot of reassurance from your partners yeah i definitely feel like i'm quite a worrier um and i think that in some of my relationships that's definitely come mm. to the forefront mm. okay so do you think that the partners maybe that you attract have been a bit avoided <laughs> i feel like do we even want to go into my relationship history at this point <laughs> um do i think that they've been avoided um no i would say that i've generally picked people who have really worked well with the attachment style so that's like they would really make me feel really loved and really cared for and really reliable but they probably like enabled that anxious side a bit more mm. because they're just always there and they always tell me how much they love me um and then it's not it's only since my most recent partner who is a secure attachment style mm. that I started to realize you know he would flag things 
almost like he wouldn't indulge the behavior, whereas like I feel like other partners would. Um, he's more secure. Honestly, I, I dated one guy who was avoidant and it was an absolute nightmare. Like an anxious attachment, you want them to be there and be present and say I love you. And the avoidant is like, whoa, mm. if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to be there and I don't want to tell you I love you. Mm. So it was like this constant um, back and forth yeah. battle. And it's a really common trap to fall into where the more someone who's avoidant is kind of running away, going, oh, can you please leave me alone because I can't handle this intimacy. And I'm like, love me, The love anxious me, love one me. is like, no, but I need reassurance. And where are you going? Come back. Come back. Tell- come play with me. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me you love me. Yeah. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure I do anymore. I'm a bit scared and put off. And then I cry. Yeah. So it's it's a, we, we joke, but it's actually a really normal trap. Um, so, so about 50 percent of people are in that five zero five zero are in a secure dynamic so when both people are secure where both people are secure oh lucky them and about the other half roughly are in this dance and Ah. so it's unusual to find two avoidantly attached people because they end up having quite a casual arrangement there's not often enough glue to hold them together i always wondered how people could do that and not get attached or not you know want it to be something more mm-hmm. so that yeah. makes sense um usually with the two anxious people it almost sounds like what you're describing before like maybe you've even encountered another anxious person Possibly. um <laughs> but that's also unusual because we often look for something in our partners that we don't possess more so secure yes so well actually no. more avoidant because uh, when we have an anxious attachment style, there's almost like a bit of a adrenaline rush or there's that intrigue in the chase and we can yeah. kind of misinterpret that as being love. And it isn't. And so what happens sometimes when you're anxious is that a secure person can come along and that secure person will have lots of really positive things to teach you. Yeah. But you can think, mm, it's a bit boring or there's something missing. And it's because you're not having to work as hard. Uh, um, and and so, it seems boring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's... Been there, been there too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why this, these opposites attract. Uh, uh, yeah, I once um, dated someone who just ticked all the boxes, mm. honestly all the boxes, everything. And I just said to my friends... It's just too boring. I just don't feel the fire and whatever. Mm. And actually, <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Actually, it was yeah. probably quite a safe and, and stable relationship potentially. Mm. And potentially, you know, if that had happened during therapy, you could have understood what was going on, what was going on, yeah. and made a more rational decision. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay, so with regards to kind of what you're looking for in relationships, um, do you feel like now you're both heading towards, well, uh, what is your relationship status? So I would say that the person that I'm with at the moment is um, secure Mm -hmm. and I am probably more anxious so that I think a lot of stuff has come to the surface that's just helped me be a bit more kind of like rational and like, communicate things and just be a bit more calm and yeah. I, I've also started to work on the fact that I don't maybe need that reassurance constantly so yes. I guess my question for you is that is it if you are a type of attachment style can that change or are you kind of stuck with it forever yeah so it's kind of both so 
in a way, you're always going to be predisposed to that attachment style. But for sure, there are things that you can do. Um, the first thing, as I mentioned before, is just the, that awareness. Yeah. So that if your partner, who's perhaps securely attached, yeah. is just off for the whole day and you feel really triggered, he's left me, he's abandoned me, why hasn't he texted me? You can check in with yourself and say, actually, this is my attachment style. This is my default fear. Yeah. And I don't need to worry about my partner. He's going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> so that awareness is the first step. And then there are also some really practical communication skills. Um, so one is the two-minute offload. Um, this is one that I personally use in my relationship. So, Am I allowed to ask you what attachment style you are? Yeah. I think no one ever, everyone always thinks that the therapist is perfect, don't they? And yeah. they're like, oh, therapist, they've worked through everything, like they have no issues. <laughs> yeah, which is a lie. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I think with um, attachment styles, they are actually on, a bit on the spectrum. Yeah. So on questionnaires, I do often come up as secure, but I know that in my relationship dynamic, I'm more anxious yeah. and my husband's more avoidant. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So but it's good to see that you can get married in an anxious avoidant trap yeah it just has to require some awareness and some work exactly and so we've done some work as a couple and I've done some work on myself Mm. to understand how to not fall victim Mm. to my anxiety basically oh I love that yeah thank you for sharing I appreciate (laughs) it no that's fine so the two minute offload um this doesn't strictly link to attachment but as perhaps a slightly more anxious person, I certainly bombard my husband with all of my worries and everything. And because he's a little bit avoidant, Uh. sometimes he feels a bit burdened by all of them. Equally, if there's something going on with my husband, he's probably not likely to tell me what it is and he'll just go off and play golf. And so I might think... (laughs) (laughs) My dad loves golf as well. (laughs) So I might misinterpret, oh, he's mad at me. But actually, no, he just is stressed at work or whatever. So this is where the two-minute offload comes in. Um, It's a really good idea to just get into the practice of checking with your partner for two minutes and being specific about what it is that's on your mind so that if you're a little bit anxious, you get kind of that containment but it's also (laughs) I'm just laughing I'm like yeah two minutes sounds good like I I don't think I normally stick to two minutes when I'm uh, allowed to say what I think and you can be really strict with it as well and time it um, so that it really does stay to two minutes yeah I think I need a clock yeah But I think it works, again, really good for, for you know, usually the man in the relationship, not always, um, to check in, get used to checking in with their partner. Uh, and Like get used to talking, even if it's just for two minutes. Yeah, and That's being a bit more emotionally vulnerable. Because when you're avoidant, you're not comfortable being emotionally vulnerable. Mm. And so it's a really good little way into communicating with your partner how you're feeling. I love that. And maybe, yeah, you could also bring it into... I don't know, does it, can you take it into family environments, like, to try and, like, keep things, like, say to your mum, you know, does it work, do you think, going across spectrum, or is it more in just romantic relationships? Absolutely, it can work in all relationships. Um, And just being really specific, I think we all have a bit of a tendency to bottle things up, and then when it comes out, it's everything and it's something from two years ago and it's something they've not and even done before. nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, that you're still holding on to. I'm still holding on to. Yeah, yeah. My husband does love how I bring up like <laughs> five 
five-year-old anecdotes. Yeah, you messaged that girl when we'd only been dating for one month, 17 years ago, and I haven't forgotten it. Yeah. <laughs> you bastard. Um, Just joking. Don't don't bring that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if after you get really comfortable with the two-minute offload, that's when you can start moving on and talking about I statements. So in relationships, it's really common. So let's say you're anxiously attached to say, you never text me. Um, I, I'm the only one in this relationship who does anything. Who cares? You don't care about me and, and make it all about the person. And then what does the person do? They say, yes, I do. I made you breakfast. Da, da, da. And then you get into this whole big row. But actually what you want to communicate is how you're feeling. Yeah. So we actually went through this a little bit before. We did. And we thought it might be fun to do a little role play with you. <laughs> so do you have any real life examples? Of... Oh, well, you didn't tell me we were going to do a real life example. Uh, yeah. Um, OK, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's pick um, a non-stressful one. So, um, yeah, when um, my partner goes to work, probably because he's a secure attachment style, he will put his phone down because he works in a profession where he can't really use his phone. Um, and sometimes we'll just be like, okay, like, speak to you later. Puts the phone away. And then I'm always hours. like, well, when's later? Like, when are you going to message me? And I'm like, are you not thinking of me? Because I'm thinking of you. And, and this just happened to me. And I want to tell you, yeah. but like... And he would probably freak out hearing you talk well, he's like that. Well, he's an angel, to be fair. Okay. So he doesn't, but I feel like most men probably would. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also over time, that is not a really healthy, chilled way of engaging with your partner. Yeah, also, I'm, I'm, I'm probably exacerbating this slightly for the example. I don't okay. want everyone to think that every day I'm like, <laughs> why aren't you texting me? <laughs> please so love just me. A role play. <laughs> it's just a role play example. I haven't said please love me in about two decades. So it's <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get to our nice, okay. awkward, role play um, so how would you communicate that sentiment using an I statement I so maybe oh. when you sorry <laughs> so maybe when you do I oh. feel X. when you um, when oh no because it's fire text isn't it <laughs> when you go to work <laughs> and it's corona time and it's corona time okay when you go to work and don't text me for eight hours I feel like you don't want to talk to me and I feel unloved hmm. so if I've got this right when I don't text you for seven hours during the day it makes you feel like you're unloved and like I don't think about you is that right yes okay and is there anything else and I don't think it's difficult to just text me once in eight hours hmm. so I think that sometimes it's just also a bit rude Okay, so just to pause there, that would be veering away a little bit from the I statement. Oh, sorry. So it could be, I don't think it's difficult, um, and I feel offended, or because remember you're talking about how you feel. Okay, I don't think it's difficult to perhaps drop me a message at lunch mm -hmm. during the day, and it sometimes upsets me that you don't think about doing that. Yeah, okay. So if I've got this right, you... Um, you don't think it would be difficult for me to text you at lunchtime um, and you feel that... Sorry, I forgot the last That's bit. That's all right, I can't remember either. Uh, Sorry to... Just text me, yeah. not difficult. 
<laughs> yeah, and so it makes you feel kind of um, forgotten about. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically you say that this is how I feel, then your partner repeats that back just to clarify that they understand. Yes. Then you're given the forum. And then you can check if there's anything check else. Check if there's anything else. Then they repeat it. Yep. Yeah. And then from there, I've got a nice perspective of the problem. Okay, Louise, I think that it's reasonable for me to text you um, at lunchtime and I'm going to make an effort to do that because I think it will make you happy. Oh. And then you just get on and it's all sorted. And then it's all sorted. <laughs> that sounds quite... Yeah, good digestible bite-sized <laughs> yeah. piece of advice. Yeah, so sorry for that slightly shaky <laughs> role play. We didn't practice that one. <laughs> but basically, yeah, it's just about communicating how you feel because the other person can't argue with how you feel. And they also can't read your mind. Exactly. Which I think a lot of people in today's society just don't say what they think or feel and then you expect someone else to be able to read your mind or that your silence means oh, she's upset. Mm-hmm. So actually, like, the, either the two-minute bite size is good or I think it requires... The second exercise, the I statement, probably potentially requires... I don't want to say that I don't know if some men would, like, engage in that, but maybe a bit more of, like, an emotionally open and intelligent mm. relationship. Yeah, and I guess this is, again, a point to highlight that let's say your male partner isn't so good at expressing their feelings and stuff. They may well have chosen a partner who is quite emotional because it's something that they are lacking yeah. and so they need. Okay, um, got it. That makes sense. I think that for me, I'll start with the two-minute offload because yeah. I think that that's just such an easy way to just succinctly communicate what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And you can um, model to your partner how to do it. I um, will definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we see if we've got some more questions? Yeah, let's have a look. Okay. Right. Oh, We've got tons of questions. Yeah. We've got some good ones. And also, just while you're looking that up, Louise, um, um, it can get really easy in relationships to criticise our partners and say, why, why don't you help tidy up and clean up and blah, blah, blah. But actually, research shows that you need to say, for every negative thing you say, you need to say 10 positive things because criticism can be really toxic in a relationship. Ooh. That's interesting. Um, so show your gratitude, show your love, compliment your partner. Okay, I've got two here that I think are really relevant to what we've just spoken about. There's okay. also lots more that um, are just generally about people's situations. So again, we okay. can come back to them okay. either later or another time. Okay, yep. Um, so actually one of them is something that we've already gone over so maybe this one's less relevant but I know that I should be with someone nice and stable but every time I meet someone like this I just feel so bored Mm. it never works out my parents had quite a volatile relationship so do you think that this is to do with that Mm, yeah yeah definitely so again this whole um, episode this evening is about how what we see and understand as children can be really um, impactful in our later life Ah. so there can be some comfort in the familiarity of what we've learned of what we've learned um so that there needs to be conflict or struggle um some relationships really depend on that conflict and then making up and actually without it the the relationship might not really feel alive Um, and again this is where you need to do your own work and understand how you relate to other people um, because you might be throwing away actually really good potential good potential people that's really interesting I just feel like understanding these things like understanding your attachment style Mm. understanding kind of how you're 
your childhood shaped you is, is just so critical to developing these two-way relationships that are kind of nourishing and nurturing. And I feel like if, if we could get everyone to do their <laughs> attachment style questionnaire um, and understand that a bit better, the world would probably be, or the dating world at least, would definitely be a bit less stressful and yeah. a bit more like open and honest communication. And you get more fulfillment and more happiness from the relationships that you're in. Yeah. Um, this one I love because I think it might tie into love languages, but again, mm. you're rather dark, so we're going to let you take this one. Um, but it says, I really, really struggle to connect with my long-term partner. He mm. consistently says he loves me, and I know deep down that he does, but I just never really feel it. Mm. Does this mean that he is avoidant? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it might mean that he's avoidant. It might be that you're always the one who's suggesting to do things, who's being emotionally available and he's running away. But as you rightly mentioned, it could be linked to those love languages. So as some of you might know, there are five love languages. There's acts of kindness, physical touch, uh, words. Um, acts of kindness, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality, quality time. time and gifts. Gifts, yes. And so it's really good to understand what your love language is and understand what your partner's is so that you can notice um, when they are actually showing you love. Again, using my own experience, um, I'm probably, I love quality time and my husband, who's slightly avoidant, um, prefers not to have quality, well, he likes to have quality time on his own. Yeah. So his love language is actually acts of kindness. And uh, what kind of things does he do? Um, well, it might be looking after our daughter, which I think, mm, okay, that's not really an act of kindness to me. But in his mind, he's uh, like, I'm looking after my daughter so that you can have a lion because I care about you uh, and I love you. And so it's just about stopping to notice and understand the small things, the small things what they're trying to express um, to you. So oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that mine are um, words of affirmation, which probably makes sense maybe with the more like anxious attachment style because I just really like it when people say like, I love you and mm. I really care about you. Um, and also physical touch. Like I'm super affectionate and I want to cuddle and like I want you just to put your hand on me and like give me a stroke. Mm. Whereas, yeah, quality time for me just isn't one because I spent my whole life like working or yeah. running around. So sometimes in relationships, people are like, if theirs is quality time, it's been real, real bad because mm. I, can't, I can't give it to you, them. Yeah, I just, can't I just can't. Meet their I did not mm. have the time. Yeah. Um, and same with acts of service. Like if people kind of cook or um, clean, I'm like, hmm, <laughs> this is great. Yeah. But I don't, I don't clock it as like, as oh, love. oh, that's, I love him. That's mm. like so kind. Yeah, yeah. And also just going back to um, physical touch some people don't respond as well to it but for some people it's really important for regulating their um, nervous system ah. for releasing all those nice hormones like oxytocin and for just kind of grounding and centering because after all we are apes and so evolutionary we came from kind of grooming behaviors and touch so for some people it's really important and if you are a bit hesitant about it perhaps understanding why you're hesitant because you might benefit actually from that yeah. physical touch yeah I don't think I could be with a partner who was like no please mm. don't touch me or cuddle me because it's such an inherent like innate 
part of me. Yeah. That that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Again, so, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. We but don't I love have very these long questions. Okay. Oh, let's do them. Yeah. So we're gonna briefly, we're gonna try and keep this quite succinct, thinking a bit about your self-esteem and how it's developed over time. Yeah. So I set Louise the oil rig exercise um, where she examined some where you examined your early childhood um and how your self-esteem formed earlier then, on yeah and we're going to think about how it's evolved now yeah and i think that um for everyone at home this this exercise for me was really really profound because i felt like with the journey that i've gone on over the last year or so the oil rig kind of the beginning looking at your childhood and then the oil rig for your adulthood the difference that came up between them almost like showed me how far I've come and mm. how much I have changed as a person. So if you guys are able to do this one at home, I think that it can be really, really amazing just to either see how you've developed over time or, or where you want to go mm. over the next few years. So what are some of those key things that you would pin your self-esteem on when you were younger? Right. So I feel like when I was younger, um, again, going to quite a pushy school, there was a lot of really attractive, very intelligent. Um, it was an all girls school, you know, mm. quite pushy. Um, so I felt like I was pretty at school, but and I thought it was important to be pretty because mm. I think when you're younger, you know, if you're pretty, you get in with the cool crowds and you go to the parties. But I was never the prettiest. Mm. So my very, very best friend at school, the guys always liked her mm. so I think subconsciously even though I felt that that had to be an important thing it also made me feel a bit like rubbish at mm. the same time mm. um so yeah not quite good enough yeah mm. yeah definitely again I would never have even mentioned you know I just wasn't aware of it at the time but now when I look back yeah um my actual my this oil rig was quite interesting because it was pretty but not the prettiest mm. sporty but not the sportiest. So in time, I really excelled at um, dance and I danced with some really sort of great ballet troops when I was younger and I did a lot of gymnastics. But it, I, even though I was sort of captain, I was at a school where they were, there were international athletes, they were playing for their country. Mm. So even though I was sporty, I was never the sportiest, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. But I think being sporty was a big pillar of my self-esteem. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that you kind of relied on being a bit sporty and a bit pretty um, to prop up your self-esteem but it was a little bit wobbly because you were never the best or you never felt you were good enough at those things yeah totally and I think it ties into the third pillar which is that I was also smart because I went to a school where you were just pushed mm. but again I was never like the smartest and even though I went to a really great university it was kind of like oh well it's not quite Oxbridge, is it? And mm. I remember some teachers saying to me, oh, you, you probably shouldn't go to Oxbridge. Mm. So I felt like actually what my self-esteem was pinned up or over was probably actually a bit unstable. Mm. Um, so my oil rig was probably a bit wobbly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thank you for sharing your example on that. I think that's really helpful. That's all right. So now, you know, you've been through this process. You've had some therapy. What are you hoping to kind of pin your self-esteem on now? Yeah, I think that, the critical thing that's come out of working with you um, is, first of all, what my limiting beliefs were. So kind of looking at the first oil rig, it's like you have to be um, you have to be the smartest or the sportiest or the prettiest to be, you know, anything. Mm. Um, so I think understanding that and understanding how I felt like great value was always attributed to, to my measures of success in that regard. Mm. 
whereas over time and, and since understanding my family dynamic and everything, I feel like those pillars of self-esteem have there have been more added in, which mm. um, I know that we've discussed makes the base more stable because if one of them falls away, the, the oil rigs got, yeah. still got that balance. Mm. Um, and also I think they've gone from being these um, external metrics, so what other people were probably thinking of me, to internal ones. Mm. And I think that that's probably just been part of this whole journey that I've been on. Mm. So I've written here, for example... Now the things that I feel like I derive my self-esteem from or the things that I want to are being a really reliable, kind and compassionate friend, mm. um, helping others, um, knowing that who I am is enough, like mm. just as I am. And I don't need to be thinner or be prettier or whatever. Mm. A really interesting one that I know that we explored together is also um, the concept of like how one looks. Yeah. Because obviously, as you get older, you start to age. Mm. Um, and I think that's really challenging for women, um, particularly where I feel like men just, they just don't really seem to age in the same way. I yeah. don't know. That's probably yeah. wrong. But just feel like men are like, oh, yeah, we can just keep fine whining until we're whatever, 60. <laughs> yeah. Whereas women through society feel like panicking about mm. aging. And so I feel like knowing on the inside mm. of me that I'm, I know I'm kind and I care about people. It doesn't really matter what happens to yeah, this. Yeah. And I think luckily, and, and this relates to you, I think social media was all about the filter and all about perfection. And now, thank God, we are slowly starting to peel back and yeah. start to hear some more authentic voices run through social media. So that's great. And, you know, just to wrap up, I think it's really important to find your intrinsic worth through something that you can really control, um, through being a kind person, through being generous, and not through how you look or how well you're doing in your career, because those things can change. Yeah, and no one can, no one can take it away from you if you're a great friend or mm. if you invest in your friends and family or if you help others. Like, I found a huge part of my journey. I never realised how much pleasure I could derive out of, like, servitude to others, mm. um, doing this sort of thing, doing our podcast. Uh, it's... Yeah, it's made me realise that it gives me a level of confidence mm. because it's just such a wholesome way of being um, mm. rather than posting on social media about, like, what holiday I'm on. You yeah. know, that makes me feel a bit empty and the oil rig's probably wobbling mm. um, because people are probably talking. And actually, yeah, now I just have this more stable oil rig. And I think it comes with age probably mm. as well. Yeah, But I think that for people at home, understanding that that oil rig that you had as a child, like that can change over time. And you can also rebuild it yourself, mm. um, either through therapy or, or just doing a bit of self-work and listening to podcasts and researching and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I think you and I could talk forever. I know, we probably have been um, talking forever, haven't we? But um, we're at an hour now. So yes, we've if, actually gone over. Yeah, we? we've gone over by a minute. So if you need to step away, thank you so much for joining us. But thank shall you. we try and just answer like one quick question yes, or so? Yes, definitely. We'll answer them quickly. Um, Okay, here we are. Q okay. and A. Okay. Um, oh goodness, I don't know which one to pick. Just pick a random one. Um, I think we've gone over that one. Oh, and oh, they're all quite similar. Okay. Okay. First one for you. Whilst I read through the others, okay. it relates to the two-minute offload. Yes. Um, how do you do the two-minute offload, and is it advisable to do it with the I statements as well? So essentially, I guess maybe we could discuss how you ask your partner, like, "I'd like to try this exercise with you." Like, yeah. How would you bring yeah. it up with them? 
Okay, so um, there's not necessarily a hard and fast rule. Um, I statements, I think, are always helpful for communication. Um, but I guess if there's something that's troubling you that might be affecting your partner, so you're particularly stressed at work or you're not having time to exercise and you notice that it's making you grumpy, that's a really good thing just to check in with your partner about. Um, you can even time it um, and... And just get your partner as well, perhaps, to listen or they can feedback what they've heard. I think partners often want to offer a solution. This isn't what it's about. It's an offload. That's it. And you've got two minutes to do it. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That understanding it's just to almost open that gate of communication rather than finding a solution. Mm. And I think that if we all as humans can just start to talk a little bit more... Um, it will just help, really, won't it? Well, yeah, quite. And I think, you know, in therapy, you do get some therapists that want to fix the problem. But actually, my role is I'm not going to teach you how to lead your life. My life certainly isn't perfect. So I'm going to give you that space to see the problem for what it is. And then the solution, hopefully, will become clearer. Yeah, and work through it. Um, OK, this one's a good one. Having a very traditional family means having very traditional thoughts. Mm. How might this influence me when trying to come out, mm. knowing how they think right now? And what advice would you give for someone who is hiding so deep, mm. hiding something so deep? Yeah, wow. I don't know if you need a bit of time to prep that one, if it's a bit... Oh, it's okay. There's no time, yeah. Louise. <laughs> no, no prep time in yeah. life, is there? So, well, funnily enough, pretty much all of my clients are gay or bisexual. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Apart from me. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe you have a, something maybe. you need to share. Guys, um, today we're here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, you know, we just That's live so in a different society now yeah. where we don't have to be so gender conformist and so traditional. But I am yet, all here for that. I agree. But yet we often come from these traditional yeah. families. And so it's important to unpick you know, are you internalising some negativity? And if you definitely aren't... Um, like one holding shame that we don't realise, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And if it's definitely not that, and if it's really about your parents, one thing you can do is a decision analysis where you list some of the pros and the cons of coming out to your parents. Um, so it might be that they see you differently that could be a, a con but the pro is that you'll be able to be your more authentic self and have more real conversations you'll be able to direct more energy into your relationships um and and so you might feel that on balance that's okay um one thing i would say is that sometimes things can be scary but it doesn't mean it's a reason not to do it mm. um one of my favorite books is feel the fear and do it anyway and it's all about just pushing your comfort zone so each time you take a risk your comfort zone is bigger but it's hard to answer on this specific question because i don't know the specific the specifics yeah but i'm obviously not qualified in any way to give any advice but what i would say is that i think that knowing that when you step into that true authentic you and you totally own it for who you are and the beautiful human that you are and surround yourself with people that get it, I would hope that in the long run, like the joy that you will derive from that might be able to sort of, your parents will see how happy that makes you. And I know mm. it's, it can often be much more difficult than that, but just really hoping that you can go on that journey and yeah. take one step towards being the amazing, true you. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Um, okay. So Should we make this the last one? Oh, okay. We're going to do an Instagram live where we're going to cover some of these answers and just fill in some of the blanks. Yeah. Okay, last one. I'm just going to pick the first one that's on the screen so I don't spend a long time scrolling. But okay. 
This one I think is interesting because the question is, where can I get therapy for severe relationship problems relating to childhood trauma, Mm. especially regarding intimacy? I feel like I have to resign myself to the fact that I'll never be able to enjoy a normal relationship. Mm -hmm. And before I hand this over to you, I just want to say to everyone watching that this is something that we get asked so much Mm. is how should I start my therapy journey? I don't know where to start. I don't know who to go to. What kind of therapist do I need? Mm. And that's something that's a real priority for us, isn't it, to work on together. So in the coming weeks, we will be working on some content to help guide you to kind of start your your therapy journey yeah absolutely so I'll try and answer your question succinctly firstly I'm sorry that you've experienced um, difficulties in your childhood Um, I think hopefully it doesn't need to define you Um, the first thing to do is to research what type of therapy is available you might feel a bit more drawn to psychotherapy perhaps which really unpacks um, some of your subconscious experience or perhaps you want something a little bit more structured like um, EMDR which is eye movement desensitization regulation (laughs) and I'd love to talk about that another time because we've got quite a lot of questions about that too so we'll we'll touch on that at a later date too so once you're informed um, you then have two options if you're going to go down the NHS route if you're here in the UK you would go to your GP make sure you really explain the mental health component to why you need help Uh, what does that mean sorry just to clarify well it's just that if a GP submits a referral a referral to a psychology service yeah. and it doesn't state you know that you feel depressed or and anxious, that, or anxious or obtrusive or, thoughts yeah or that you're struggling to connect in relationships it might not meet the really high thresholds that we have in the NHS so if she went or he sorry I think it was an anonymous mm. question yeah. if he or she went to a doctor and said um, I'm really struggling in my relationships mm. is that enough to get a successful referral or should the person almost sort of back it up with and as a result I'm feeling depressed that I can't form a relationship is it always well, important yeah. to just so I would say don't lie but don't hold back yeah. because unfortunately you are in the NHS competing for a very limited resource um so don't hold back don't delay as well if yeah. you start to notice that you need help with this get it sorted out as soon as you can If you're in a position to be able to pay either for a low-cost or private therapist, then you can look on the counselling directory or the British Psychological website and always check on the um, HCPC website to check that your therapist is legitimate. Um, Some titles are protected, so a psychotherapist or a clinical psychologist, that title's protected, but some other disciplines, so if someone just says a, a psychologist, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have all of the right credentials. And maybe we could touch on that as well in in another piece of content, the difference between the different types of doctors, just because people, I think, often ask me, you know, what's the difference between a clinical psychologist or a psychotherapist? And, And I'm always like... I'll ask Dr. Helen. Yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, even even if you just saw a clinical psychologist, we're not all robots. So, yeah. you know, feel out your therapist. Yeah. In the beginning, you might feel a bit worse as you're unpacking all these traumas and difficulties. But if you're just really not connecting with your therapist, it's okay. Say goodbye yeah. and find another one. Um, That's because, such a good yeah. piece of advice. Yeah, I love that. 
Okay. Okay. Well. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us this evening. It's been a bit frantic, but I hope you've no. been able to get something from it. Yeah, it's been perfect. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you again for providing me with a safe, safe space to be able to go through all the things that I've gone through in my life. Yeah. And I hope that along the way, um, some of the worksheets and the questionnaires might have delivered some little light bulb moments yeah. for you too. Um, you've been so brave as well. Oh, so thank, thank you. you. And thank you for... <laughs> Yeah, just holding my hand through this journey. I'm really, really grateful. And you're always providing me with a safe space too. So oh, thank you. Thank and you. Yeah, we'll thank see you, you soon, guys. hopefully. Take care. Bye-bye.